Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, John White. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And excitingly, keeping it in the family, we're also joined by my wife, Jess Wyatt. Hi, Jess. Hi, guys. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's a real Wyatt family affair today. Three members of the same family. Um, and it's not Never let nepotism. it be said. We don't do nepotism. Yeah, that's just what I was about to <laughs> Well, I'm trying to stress to the listeners, it's not purely nepotism because Jess is highly qualified to talk about what we're, what this week's topic, which is dementia. Um but before we explain a bit more about that, Jess, do you want to explain uh, who you are, what you do and, and how you got writing about dementia? Hello. Yes. Hi, I'm Jess. I have the great pleasure of being Tim's wife and John's daughter-in-law. And um, I'm uh, t- training to be a vicar in the Church of England. And I'm also doing a PhD here at Oxford University, um, looking at theology and philosophy and embodiment. Fantastic. And in particular, your most recent kind of piece of research um, focused in on uh, embodiment in the kind of context or using the lens of the issue of of dementia, um, which is what we want to talk about today. Can you explain a little bit about how you ended up writing and thinking and reading about dementia? Yeah, so I I noticed that when people tend to talk about uh, people who have dementia, especially late stage dementia, where perhaps uh, people are less in control of what they say or what they do, um, there was this idea that, um, you know, there's this quote that I pulled from one article, it said that, you know, granny's body remained, but um, she was gone. And um, I thought that was quite interesting. And I thought it'd be good to explore that from a theological perspective, um, about what is actually happening to the self as we as um, cognitive capacity declines. It's quite interesting, isn't it? It's something I've heard a lot of people say also, being interested in the same topic. It's sort of thing they say, you know, that that, that in, in the bed, that isn't my mother. Uh, you know, I don't recognise that. Uh, and my mother died some years ago and there's something else in the bed. And, and, you know, and you understand, you know, I understand why people say things like that, although it really jars, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think it's interesting about um, statistics about um, abuse of people with dementia uh, compared to other elders. And um, I wonder what impact this sense that they're not really people has on their care. Um, It'd be interesting to explore that a bit. Hmm. And dementia is something that probably almost everyone listening to this podcast has got some kind of personal stake of family member or a friend or their own parents. Perhaps it's it's it feels at least from a kind of non-research perspective that it's incredibly prevalent. Is is that is that accurate? Is it really increasing in prevalence or is it just we're spending a lot more time talking and thinking about it? I mean, the global literature on the prevalence of dementia anticipates that the number of people living with dementia worldwide will have trebled by 2050. Um, I mean, I'm guessing that this is not because it's increasing um, in terms of prevalence, but it's just that populations are ageing. So in the UK, someone's diagnosed with dementia every three minutes um, and one in eight people will die as a a direct result of the disease. Um, And that's not counting people who die with the disease of something else. So it really is an incredibly important public health issue. Yeah, I I think that's it's absolutely right that it's it's very much related to you, to aging so with with every 10 years that you age your risk of dementia goes up 
significantly. And so because we're seeing so many more people now in their 80s and 90s, you know, by the time, you know, off, off the top of my head, I think by the time you get to your late 90s, the risk is something like one in three. Um, so that does. So interestingly, it's not everybody, you know, and and we can I can think of my father in law who 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 died just approaching 100. And although he had deafness and, you know, he he was still uh, once you once you managed to communicate with him, you realize that he, he, he was still sharp as a button. But uh, it's much more common with with elderly people. And therefore, you know, as people project forward, you know, we've we've talked before on this podcast about the demographic changes that are going on. And therefore, it becomes obvious that unless there's some major medical breakthrough uh, in terms of, of finding a new treatment, the reality is that there are just going to be significantly more people uh, with dementia uh, in the future. Do we know what the causes of dementia are? Is there a single cause? It, it sounds like from the kind of limited reading I've done that there's been a lot of research being ploughed into this and not masses of results yet. No, I mean it's clear that it actually isn't a single disease. That it's a it's a it's a rather uh, general term, a bit like cancer or inflammation, which actually covers lots of separate different uh, disease processes. And trying to unpick it all uh, is still, although the research you know is is making progress, uh, we know that there are certain genetic uh, variants which are uh, increasingly. Uh, associated with it. And interestingly, this is turning out to be a, a major issue about um, genome screening. So now it's possible for you, you know, to go along and pay some money and get a complete readout of your genome. And what happens when it turns out that you've got two copies of the gene which is strongly associated with dementia? Uh, and there have even been cases of people who've decided to commit suicide because they got the results of a, of a DNA screen. So, so uh, but that's the minority of, of cases that are strongly genetic. And, and in many, many cases, it's still completely, people just don't understand at all. And I guess in a kind of very general sense, um, as I've understood it, that uh, dementia is basically where there's progressive degeneration of nerve cells that causes damage to the brain. And that can happen in lots of different ways. It can affect different uh, parts of the brain. And so that's why people often demonstrate quite uh, quite a wide range of symptoms from um, changes in mood and behaviour, memory and communication problems, loss of control, physical functions, because it all depends which part of the brain is damaged by this um, degeneration of the nerves. That's exactly right. And and it does. It's part of the challenge, therefore, that that, um, every person is different and the way the disease affects different people is is different although there are some some common things uh, which you know, which tends to the majority of people have particularly memory memory is is one of the key factors and and both the ability to lay down new memories increasingly goes and the ability to access old memories is increasingly deteriorating you mentioned Jess earlier that part of your your research looked at how kind of wider society talks and thinks about dementia and people with dementia. Could you say a little bit more about what you found there and kind of what is the kind of common is there a common single kind of narrative around dementia that came out? Yeah, so um, I wanted to look in particular at um, the stories of people who have gone to what you might 
loosely term as like the post-reflective stage of um, dementia, so where they don't have autonomous control over their their actions all the time or their speech all the time. Um, And there's lots of literature from people in more the kind of like medium stages of dementia. Um, Kate Swaff has written a brilliant book, which is amazingly titled What the Hell Happened to My Brain? Um, But in these later stages of dementia, obviously people find it much, much harder to articulate themselves. And there's a sense of like the incomprehension of um, people's behaviours when they reach these stages and carers who are faced with uh, loved ones who maybe don't resemble the people that they used to be or expressing themselves in uh, confusing or sometimes quite frightening ways. Um, And commonly, um, so I've surveyed um, popular level um, opinions, so looking at um, newspaper articles and comment pieces uh, and then some clinical guidance from... um, Uh, medical bodies and also some kind of philosophical and academic institutions and um, and perspectives and overwhelmingly the sense was that um, your sense of self is understood to decline as your cognitive capacity declines Um, and I thought that was really interesting um, particularly uh, as a Christian who believes that um, our bodies are an integral part of what it means to be yourself. So I've noticed that um, when you talk to people about what they're most frightened about as they look towards the future, whereas previously one of the commonest things that people would say is they're most frightened about having cancer, um, now it seems that dementia has actually replaced cancer as the uh, condition or disease which many, many people are fearful of, and particularly Christians and have you come across that and, and, and what's your thinking about why, why that's so? I mean, I think there is quite a strong history of um, philosophy that um, links links our um, selves with a kind of sense of like an enemy. Um, so, you know, you've got Rene Descartes' argument that the self um, is not in the body. You've got John Locke's idea that personal identity exists because of consciousness, Hume, Kant, Hegel, like it basically it runs through philosophical tradition from kind of the enlightenment onwards. And I think that um, our culture is really influenced by that, but I think also Christian um, thinking has also been influenced by that. Um, and I'm really interested in a move back um, towards seeing the body as a um, something where the self is retained and uh, sustained across a whole lifetime, um, which I think is a new move in theology in the last kind of 20 years and is really interesting. So it's interesting, isn't it? If you think about it, it's blindingly obvious that philosophers as a breed are a pretty weird breed. You know, of all the things you could decide to do with your life, you know, you decide to sit in a library and and think about the ultimate mysteries and 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 read arcane long books and, and write abstract books and and, and 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 it's hardly surprising therefore that the weird kind of people who become philosophers come to the conclusion that actually this is basically what life is all about it's all about thinking enormous complex abstract thoughts and sitting on your backside in a library and 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 so so it's it's perhaps hardly surprising that you know all that long list of philosophers you've said uh all come to the conclusion that what is the important thing about me is my ability to think and my awareness of myself and sitting in this sort of abstract uh sense um and and perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that philosophers aren't necessarily the best people to give a, an understanding of what it really means to be human. And and also, in addition to being philosophers, they're also 
overwhelmingly uh, men and yeah. uh, economically independent and uh, white. And there is a sense in which the idea of autonomy and rationality and uh, power is embedded in this. And actually, when you look at um, feminist uh, readings of these things and um, uh, theology that's coming up through Latin America and the global South, actually, it's a completely different um, emphasis. And so part of this is redressing um, an imbalance in the voices speaking on this issue. Yeah, in other words, the only reason that these men can sit in their libraries and think thoughts is because of all this army of other people who are actually exactly. <laughs> looking exactly. after them and making food yeah. and caring yeah. for them. But exactly. they don't count. <laughs> and, and I think we're going to go to talk about this later, but this is why it's really important to centralise the voices of caregivers who are really our teachers in how we... Um, understand what it means to live in these really late stages of dementia and and have so much to tell us uh, by their practice, but also the lives that they live alongside uh, people living with dementia. So in kind of basic everyday terms, what you're suggesting then is that part of the reason people are so afraid of getting dementia is because they believe that to be themselves, you know, to be Tim, I have to be able to think and act rationally. And if I become entombed within my body you know just lying in a hospice somewhere unable to talk maybe unable to reason unable to make sense unable to write then I am to all intents and purposes although I'm not yet dead I have kind of lost my timness is that is that a fair summary of what what your kind of case you think or about what the kind of common narrative we come across in society yeah definitely there's a sense in which we are um we are what we do or we are what we think or we are our memories um and overwhelmingly we seem to link this with a sense of like an enemy that's not connected to the body and and first of all I think that that is um scientifically untenable there's you know uh, movements of embodied cognition um observing that all of these things are fully embodied and we are there is no such thing as an enemy that is abstract from our bodies but also um a move to explore the the way in which we are still full persons even if we are you know not self-aware or not autonomous um and i think that is can be quite controversial but is a really important um value as that i hold as christian i also wonder whether for christians and particularly in the kind of protestant and evangelical uh wings of christianity that so much emphasis is put upon internal faith and belief and trust, you know, and, and people look back and they say, you know, this was the time when I came to faith and this, this, this is, uh, and I understood the meaning of salvation and, you know, and I have to re- continue to repent of my sins and I need to continue to, to reach out um, and, and accept forgiveness. And what would happen if I lost all that memory what would happen if i couldn't quite remember why i was a christian would i lose my faith would i lose my salvation you know would would the all the foundations of, of my christian life come tumbling down and it's interesting that a lot of this move towards understanding the body as the locus of the self is um a lot of it comes from uh, french catholic um teaching and there's um you know movements like lash which is a um organization that um sees that people with disabilities cognitive disabilities are our teachers in life and um that's a catholic organization it's interesting that these kind of uh, church traditions that focus on liturgy and embodied practice have been uh, the ones to maybe tell us Protestants, well, hold on, it's not all just about what you think. 
But hold on for a second here, Jess, because if you're saying that there is no kind of me that is separate from the body, some of our Christian listeners might be saying, well, what what do we do with stuff in the Bible about the soul or the spirit? Isn't there a tradition in Christianity that there is a kind of sense of self or, or there is a Tim that can exist outside of this kind of flesh and bones that I'm wrapped up in? And is that not what that's that's what's going to be resurrected or, or, or you know, there's a there's a lot of slightly confused thinking around that. How do you interpret that if you think that we are kind of these holistic embodied beings alone? I think I would definitely push back against the word alone there. I think that um, basically the Bible does not give us a comprehensive metaphysics. It doesn't tell us um doesn't lay out okay you're this percentage of this and you're this percentage of this what it does is it um gives us the example of uh, true humanity which is christ and in christ jesus uh, in christ god becomes flesh and that has to be an essential component of what it is to be human is to be made of flesh and bones we are adam um human humanity made from the adama from the dust um and that is an essential part I am compelled by the idea of um, a multidimensional understanding of what it means to be human, which is that we are, um, you know, these are these words of soul and spirit, like they're all mixed in there, but they're all different angles looking at this same um, human being who is fundamentally embodied and that you can't withdraw a human person from their body. Um, but but that doesn't mean they're not also ensouled and we're not, you know, spiritual beings and all these different things. But you, a human person, you can't divide them up in that way. Yeah, and I I think I also think absolutely along the same lines that this idea that it it is one of the fundamental differences, I think, between the Greek, particularly Platonic idea, uh, which has had such a big influence in the history of Christianity. But Plato definitely has this, this dualism between a physical body which decays and eventually dies and the immortal soul and the body is a kind of uh, place in which the soul resides, and at death the soul goes back and continues on living. And when you compare that with the biblical Hebraic understanding of what it means to be human, it's a much more holistic um, understanding, isn't it, with lots of different aspects of us, but all united in one person. Um, I love that phrase. It, It says in Psalm 103 where it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, let all that is within me uh, praise his holy name. And this idea is that there's an awful lot of complicated stuff inside me. (laughs) I don't really understand it, but I just want everything that's within me to praise the Lord. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Coming back to dementia then, if we do have this understanding of, you know, using your quote, granny, if we reject the idea that granny's body is there, but granny is gone, we say that's a kind of sub-Christian understanding of what's going on in dementia. If we say, no, no, granny might not be able to talk to us. She might not no longer look exactly like granny or she might not be able to remember that I am her grandson, but she's still granny. How does that change then what we might talk and speak about people with dementia? Does it change anything about how we care for them or how we think about them? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the key things is to... um, to have at the centre of our care for them the, the knowledge that they persist 
um, as per, as full human beings, as full persons throughout the course of their life. And um, I feel very strongly that um, they are the same. They are the same person, and it's and it's incredibly painful for loved ones to witness um, the deterioration of a loved one. But we have to understand that they are the same person and 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 lament that that it is that we we carry that history through with us um and that and yet that as christians we believe there is restoration in the new creation and um that that embodied history goes with us into the new creation is somehow in in the mystery of god restored and redeemed um yeah and it's interesting because the the person i observed the closest was my own mother who you know, was transformed from this lovely, vivacious uh, Christian lady uh, into uh, someone who was, you know, profoundly impaired. And she was uh, at one stage very distressed. She was having hallucinations. Um, She was um, very, very confused. And, and, And it was deeply, deeply painful. I can remember going and visiting her and uh, to begin with, I didn't recognize her. I was visiting her in the hospital for the first time. And I, I remember I walked into the uh, in the hospital where she was. I looked in the day room. There were various people sitting in, in chairs. It was obvious she wasn't there. I went to the room where she was supposed to be and she wasn't there. I went back to the day room and I realized I'd walked past my mother sitting in a chair and I hadn't recognized her. And uh, I remember that visit after having some time with her I, I went to speak to the consultant who was caring for her and I just burst into tears on the on the consultant because that sense of loss of of of, of what she was and, and what she would no longer be that it was, it was devastating listening to stories like that then um how how does this how does this understanding of him of us being embodied um, help us maybe to kind of see past the physical changes that are being kind of wrought on those experiencing dementia, um, which can be, as as Dad has said, so incredibly profound. Yeah, and I think this is incredibly difficult. Um, I think I would like to to say that it gives us hope that even in even when these body, you know, these embodied people that we've loved and we've cared for and have maybe raised us and. Um, and all of these things seem so profoundly alien. There is a persisting knowledge that they are the same person, and that there is, um, you know, it's not just fragments of the old person, but this is a, the person that you knew. And and you hear stories of this where you know um, a person hears a piece of music, and though they can't speak, they're able to sing, you know, verses of Amazing Grace or do a Charleston dance. And 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 I think you do have these moments. Um, but even when those moments are not. Um, uh, forthcoming to be confident that this is the same person I think is really important and um, I hope that um, we can if we listen carefully to these people we can uh, learn to understand their communications in this completely different way of living um, 
I think the reality is that um, in advanced dementia, people's um, communication to us can be incredibly difficult to understand. Um, so health professionals often use diagnostic instruments to help them understand um, people's communications. Um, so there's this thing called PainAD, um, which is a tool to use to measure pain responses uh, through reflexive indicators such as breathing, negative vocalisation, facial expression. Um, but when they've studied um, people's different expressions, they uh, they studied 129 different distressed behaviours generated by 79 people and 72 of those behaviours were found to be utterly unique to the individual. And I think what this tells us is that we need to have um, extremely individualised care because um, while we might all speak the same verbal language, when um, verbal language or gesture fails us, um, our bodies are highly individualised and will express themselves in unique ways. And this is where the knowledge and the wisdom of caregivers, um, you know, regular caregivers, loved ones, is so important because they're the people who are going to be able to tell us and witness to the self that persists throughout the latter stages of dementia, going to be able to, to notice when that person is distressed and be able to uncover um, the person within that is often uh, seems obscured by the impact of this disease. Yeah, I mean, that rings a lot of bells with me. Um, and certainly uh, one of the things I noticed was that uh, certainly in the early stages of, of, of the disease with my mother, that as the relatives, we felt uh, often at sea, but we noticed that the very experienced consultant who cared for many, many people with dementia seemed to have this skill this knack of being to engage her and to be able she responded my mother responded in very well just to uh, it made me re recognize that skilled carers uh, can make an enormous difference and it was certainly the case that music um we uh, the family when we were visiting sometimes we would go around the around the bed and we would just sing some of the old hymns from her childhood and uh, it was interesting how often she responded to that and would suddenly join in uh, singing away um, and singing in harmony, even though, you know, she hadn't been able to articulate anything. So, so I think there's no doubt that these different uh, modalities and understanding the unique way of, of, of the, the way the person is communicating is incredibly important. And Jess, I understand quite a large part of your research is trying to dig into like how can we listen, as it were, to the what the body is saying to us? When people might lose verbal communication, they're not totally uncommunicative. And so how can we attend to what people who are experiencing dementia, how their bodies are communicating? Could you explain a little bit more about what you mean by the idea of kind of listening to the body? Yeah, so I think... Um this this involves um you know not just applying our reflective cognition and thinking critically about oh i wonder what's going on there and and uh, developing other diagnostic tools for example there's um, one called distat which is um where caregivers um are partnered um with to come up with a diagnostic tool that is unique to that individual and they will list um the behaviors of that individual person that is used to resource other caregivers so there's these like practical applications um of our you know our cognitive um, faculties but there's also the application of um the knowledge that we as uh, caregivers and as listening people around these um, those with dementia are also embodied and um, understanding that we can listen with our whole bodies. Um, and I think key to that is really is touch, is being um, physically close to people with dementia, being attuned to them. 
I think one of the things this comes down to is how we understand how we know things. Um, so Ian McGraw-Christ um, wrote a really fascinating book talking about the two models of knowledge that we have. Um, and often we can think of knowledge like being a lighthouse where you kind of look out through your eyes and your, your light is kind of scanning the shore and you're um, spotting things and you're like, I can see that. That goes into my brain. That's how I know things. But um, this is not really how we come to know things. The way in which we know things is... Um, is through, is, is through our bodies, is through our, our whole bodies. Uh, for example, riding a bike. If I was to explain to you, Tim and John, uh, this is how the physics works when you ride a bike and this is how much pressure to put on the pedals and, and all of that stuff, you wouldn't actually know how to ride a bike. You learn to ride a bike uh, by feeling it and you retain that knowledge. And, and you know, the vast majority of the things that we know about the world are done through our body, through our through the subconscious body and through um, that kind of reflection. Um, and so I think applying those theories to um to care and to understanding that we can pick up an enormous amount of knowledge through touch through bodily participation through proximity and time um and these things are really difficult and we may go on to this but uh, there are lots of pressures in healthcare that means that this is becoming increasingly difficult but i think it's really important especially for those who are experiencing cognitive decline yeah and actually i can think of a very good example of that Uh, in my father was very um, faithful in visiting my mum in the care home and spent many, many hours uh, with her. And he told me that um, he'd had a childhood accident um, and he'd lost the tip of, of one finger, the fourth finger. And he said that when he was sitting holding uh, my mother's hand, long after she was not able to speak, what would happen is that her thumb would come out and would feel all the fingers and she would feel that that tip was missing. And, and then she knew it was him. And uh, it's that kind of implicit knowledge, isn't it? It's knowledge that is, that is nonverbal, which is, which is there, but actually, you know, he said that was incredibly significant to him. And to bring this back to, you know, to Jesus, you know, touch was a huge part of his ministry. You know, he, he he touched the leper. He touched uh, the women who women who'd been bleeding for twelve years. You know, he did not shy away from this, and um, and it and that is a lesson. He schools us in the importance of touch. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right, and I think one of the sad things is that it, because of all the abuse scandals and and the sexualization of the culture, uh, touch has become intensely sexualized and intensely uncomfortable. And and therefore, people often shy away, carers shy away from touch in case it could be misunderstood, in case they could be impu- accused of, of something inappropriate. Whereas, whereas actually, uh, you can see how important it is um, as, as an expression of, of care and, uh, and compassion. And as an essential mode of, of communication as well, you know, touch is dialogue. Hmm. touches you cannot touch without being touched and there's something like speech and listening where uh touch is really very similar hmm. and i guess you know we probably don't want to go down this sidetrack too much because we covered it in previous episodes but this underlines the kind of risks of you know because a lot of people say well the solution to the kind of dementia crisis you know you mentioned numbers tripling by 2050 is going to be utilizing new technology to look after people and we'll have care robots that can care for people in their homes and liberate us all from having to kind of move into a granny flat when our grannies get dementia but obviously a robot 
doesn't have skin and and it, like a human hand and can't hold the hand of a person with dementia in the same way and that is a kind of fundamental human to human piece of care that cannot be replicated no matter how advanced our technology becomes yeah and i've definitely experienced when in the hospital you know or in the doctor's surgery when uh the doctor takes your hand or your you know your lumpy rash thing and and examines it there's something affirming about that and there's something about the touch of another human being that you just can't i just don't think that you can swap that for a robot yeah it's really interesting and and certainly that's been my experience as a doctor as well in fact you know i came to the conclusion that there was something almost sacramental about laying on of hands you know when when you talk to somebody who presents with a with a problem that's one thing but when you actually physically examine them uh, it it actually creates a kind of bond or at least if you've done it well and 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 carefully and with attention it, it, it there's something sacramental about the laying on of hands and uh, and there's no way that clever machinery is going to is going to have the same effect you know, it, it is very interesting, isn't it? Going down this line, it just reinforces how the the physical nature of both the incarnation and the physical resurrection that that Jesus, you know, the the accounts in the Gospels are that Jesus is a is a touchable, recognizable, uh, physical human being, not just some kind of apparition. You know, it's it's often. Th- People feel that, you know, an intellectualized version of Christianity, which, which sees this all as spiritual and analogy, uh, is often thought to be much more attractive, whereas the real physical idea of incarnation is, is rather crude and, and, and rather, you know, un, un, unattractive. Uh, but actually what this is emphasizing is that it's precisely the physical uh, nature of uh, traditional Orthodox Christian belief about about Jesus about the incarnation the resurrection is precisely that physicality which is so important definitely and I think you see that in Jesus's encounters with the disciples you know I particularly think about John 20 when um you know Thomas is doubting if this is him and and Jesus um says put your finger here see your hand reach out your hand and put it in my side and there's something about this body-to-body encounter where Jesus says you can see me, but that's not going to be enough. You need to touch me to know who I really am. And um, here we see this biblical conception of the self as being really rooted in the body. Hmm. And it's the same, you know, when he appears to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, what's he doing? He's cooking them breakfast. So they sit down and eat and consume. And, you know, that's something about the need to kind of refuel our bodies with the physical stuff that is God has put here on the earth, in this case, fish again kind of really centers and grounds in a literal sense grounds us to the earth and to the to the world we're in um even though obviously jesus has this kind of amazing spiritual resurrected miraculous body that can also walk through walls and appear in multiple places without needing to travel and it's kind of both and um but it's clear that whatever is going on after resurrection we're not losing that earthiness that adama kind of nature you were talking about yeah, so I mean, it's all wonderful theology, and I, I totally buy into it. But I suppose as we come to the end, you know, how how does this cash out in terms of practical practicalities? I mean, we've already talked about, you know, the challenges there are for carers. Carers are very busy; they're under pressure. Um, is this just an unrealistic dream? Uh, this this level of 
compassionate physical uh, care communication or or is it something that can actually be become real I I think you're absolutely right John I think that there there are huge challenges to this um I think often the main challenge is an economic one that you know time spent uh, with patients um human to human patients you know care is not just automated care uh, is is expensive um, but I think it's really important that we think that uh, this is worth investing in and, and not just for the benefit of those uh, in advanced cognitive decline, but also for the the, um, the quality of our, our physicians, because we well, if we separate people from physicians, then physicians and uh, you know nurses and physiotherapists and every, everyone else loses the opportunity to learn from these people as their teachers. Um, and we need to see this as a. Um, as an investment into healthcare overall, that as we come into bodily contact with people who are really at the in the final stages of living, this these are opportunities to enrich our healthcare in all sorts of different ways. And maybe there's a cautionary word there, a kind of against the move, kind of massive shift towards kind of telemedicine that was often kind of accelerated by the pandemic. Um, and there's a lot of research and hope that we can save lots of money by moving lots of consultations online and, and doing things via apps and the phone and, and Zoom. And I think that's a really helpful kind of just, you know, a lot of that is positive and good and will save us money. But there's actually, there's as Dad was saying, there's something very important about the doctor and the patient being able to physically touch each other, um, even if, you know, they don't need to like roll your sleeve up, look at a rash. But actually, particularly for those people who are entering into dementia, I imagine there's something um, it's it, you know holding on to those moments, fleeting moments of contact um, with the professionals tasked looking after you is even more important. But then, as you say, from the economic perspective, clearly, as we have we talked about before, you know, with an aging society, there's fewer and fewer the proportion of people who are kind of active, working taxpayers generating the money that funds healthcare becomes a smaller slice of the pie as the number of people who are inactive, economically inactive, and you know, crudely a drain on the public purse gets larger and larger. It is going to be a massive challenge how we fund any of this kind of care, let alone expand it. Yeah, I I do think a lot of it is about priorities because the truth is that uh, the way the health service is funded at the moment, vastly at more is spent on uh, curative treatments aimed, you know, sometimes to give people only a few extra weeks of life. You know, people with very advanced cancer who are being offered... uh, treatments you know sometimes costing a million a million pounds a million dollars you know which which may uh only offer a few years of life um and so it's it's not as though there are no resources there it's a question of how what the priorities are and that sadly care of the elderly and dementia care psychogeriatrics all of these things these are cinderella areas of care which have been starved of resources uh, because they're not thought of as high priority and it's the same with the number of carers why is there a desperate shortage of carers answer because their pay and conditions is are so bad uh, you know there isn't a shortage of neuroscientists or you know people wanting to do um, artificial intelligence programming you know there are far than enough human beings on the planet to provide all the specialized carers we need uh, but it's it's a challenge again about priorities uh, and deciding what's really important. 
And I guess linked with that is um, prioritising the care and well-being of informal carers, families, friends. You know, uh, there are seven million carers in, in England alone who are unpaid and informal. Um, and the Alzheimer's Society did um, a survey just before the pandemic and found that nine out of ten uh, of those caring with people uh, for people with dementia experience stress and anxiety several times a week um, and 40% were giving round-the-clock care with little respite or outside support. Um, we have an enormous number of people being cared for in the home um, with no one ever checking in how they're doing um, and investing in these informal carers who are really the backbone of our social care system at the moment is really important. And that kind of leads on to my next question, which was what are the kind of take-home messages for the church as an institution? Um, and is, I guess one of those is like we need to be ramping up what the church is doing pastorally to look after the carers, you know, to care for those who are caring for for for, for who with dementia. And um, yes, absolutely. I think making uh, people with dementia and their carers at the centre of church life is really important. I think often these people feel really at the fringes of things. You know, is is church accessible if you um, if you're caring for someone around the clock, or if you um, are a person who struggles to interact with a sermon, or just thinking about how we centre these people in our in our church life um, and making sure they're not pushed to the margins. I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, so many churches um, are trying to present a kind of youthful uh, image. They want fast moving, you know, interesting, colourful uh, services which are attractive to young people. And it's all, I mean, is it realistic at the same time to have um, a church's and church services which are uh, appropriate for people with dementia or, or for their carers. I mean, is it possible for us all to be one community like that? I think it comes down to the question of priorities. I think that, um, you know, there's something about weaker brother. There's something about, uh, you know, the Beatitudes tell us that uh, the kingdom is about the the centralization of the people who are on the margins. And Jesus exemplifies this. He orients himself towards the sick and the cast out, uh, the people who are seen as untouchable. And I think that there needs to be a bit of soul searching for people like me who are young and able to... Um, to take ourselves out of the center of the world. Um, and ultimately that is how we see the face of Jesus. You know, it's only by looking at the, uh, the resurrection body, the scars uh, on Christ's hands that Thomas was able to see the truth about the gospel. And I think that is, is true in our churches. We see the face of Christ when we look upon uh, people who push the margins. And on a more practical level, there's a long tradition, mostly forgotten, I think, among evangelicalism of, of visiting you know of and the kind of the call on the pastor the minister the, the vicar the, the priest to get out of the church building into their parish into their community and go into those who are housebound who are sick who are ill who are elderly and get alongside them and visit them and I know there are lots of church leaders who still do that but I think it's often fallen by the wayside as we've in a kind of era of church decline and secularization we're kind of so focused on church growth and about programs and drawing people into the building that actually maybe there's something about picking up that ancient tradition of visiting of 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 bringing the presence of god you know and, and a lot of that you know historically has been around you know doing communion with people who can't do communion at church but i think it's bigger than that as well and it doesn't need to be just in the hands of ordained priests it could be something that actually lay members of churches you could have rotors and 
and I'm sure there are lots of churches that do that well, but something there I think for us to think about about inclusion doesn't just mean sucking people in on a Sunday, but it means um, seeing the Monday to Saturday kind of life of the of the community of the parish if it is one of those as something that can involve people who are housebound in care homes in hospitals as well. Well, I think that roughly brings our conversation uh, to a close. Um, uh, I hope it's been interesting. Thanks very much, Jess, for for sharing some of your reflections and your research on that. Um, I'm aware, of course, that this will be something that affects personally a lot of those listening as well. So um, uh, Jess is very kindly going to put together a few helpful resources, some books to read and some websites to visit and communities and uh, um, associations that might be able to support those who are caring um, for people with dementia or people who are experiencing it themselves. So do look in the the podcast notes for some of that. Um, But otherwise, um, uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Don't forget, there's lots of interesting things to read on dad's website. That's johnwyatt.com. And uh, please keep on sending in your questions or suggestions for things we can talk about. We really enjoy tackling some of those in our regular Q&A episodes. You can email molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk or you can send me a tweet i'm at ts wyatt um, on twitter Um, but otherwise uh, we'll speak to you next week bye 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 thanks for having me you've been listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable 